There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. Uh, this is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, did you know that in a tangential way, Goethe was heavily involved in – well, if it could be tangential and heavily involved – in uh, fighting the American Revolution? I, I had no idea. That sounds like a fascinating thread to pluck when we were reading well, Goethe. Yeah, it's like okay. Here's how it runs down: is the this is really sketchy because the the I believe aristocrat who he was working for slash with uh, as an advisor, um, they had a bunch of people in the jail, and the German principalities developed the scheme to start basically selling prisoners to the British uh, as soldiers oh. to be impressed into service. So a lot of what you hear about in, you know, revolutionary terms concerning the Hessian uh, mercenaries. Yeah. yeah, there were basically soldiers in the jails uh, that the Germans sold off. So just huh. kind of like ransomed out, basically said, hey, look, check it. You can get time off and basically get out if you go to the Americas and help put down the revolution. Um, it's it's a weird, sketchy aspect of uh, Goethe's <laughs> yeah. career as you know an advisor to the nobility. And why am I bringing this up? Because we're almost to Goethe, but in order to get to Goethe, we got to get through Johnson. Much, um, much like uh, – much like Washington crossing the Delaware, in yes. order to get to those Hessians, we have to make a, a bold uh, a bold journey through the icy, frigid waters of Samuel Johnson's literary criticism. I mean, I say yeah. that, but honestly, I think of all the Johnson that we've read, I enjoyed this stuff the most. Well, that was that was the the weird thing is this is where I think he at least for me he hits his stride. Yeah. Maybe it's because I've spent my life doing this. Uh, yeah. I.e. it being engaged in literary criticism, being engaged in basically all of the the activities that he occupies himself with, uh, be it literary editing, be it uh, annotating and footnoting, be it um, compiling texts and moving through them 
to sort of evaluate what is the best possible version of the text to to publish, be it evaluating and analyzing the works of others. I mean, a, a lot of this stuff really sort of hit home. I don't necessarily agree with him 100%. In fact, I find myself disagreeing a, a, a lot with him. And yet, this was the stuff where it was sort of like, okay, this is in my wheelhouse. And, and it really struck home in a way that the other works did not. Yeah. Um, so, so we're sort of ending Johnson on a high note. I guess I was being a little cheeky there with uh, the, <laughs> the, the anecdotes. But we're, we're sort of ending Johnson on a high note because this is where I think he's kind of more of our contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and that's fascinating that you mentioned this as being a uh, – as feeling more contemporary or being our contemporary because the – uh, so, so one, one of the things that we that we read was the preface to Johnson's famous A Dictionary of the English Language. Yeah, and the the edition that we're working on, uh, that we're working with the uh, the Oxford World Classics, the major works of Samuel Johnson, includes this uh, preface that he wrote for his dictionary, uh, and also includes a sample uh, of the actual what the dictionary looked like upon printing a kind of a sample of what, what it actually ended up as. And I'll, and I'll sort of talk about that a little later. And I guess just, you know, um, we're just kind of ju- jumping in here, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but I, I mentioned that it, the whole contemporary things, I think it rings really true with this dictionary because, and I was not really aware of this. I knew that Johnson had done a famous dictionary. That was one of like the two, Johnson facts that I knew before we went into this one that he wrote a dictionary and two that he uh, had a pretty pithy comeback to uh, Barclay's uh, idealism when he kicked, kicked a rock on the ground. Right. Those, are my, those are my Johnson facts. Oh, and, and that he had a guy who loved him so much. He wrote a biography and everyone thinks the biography is a, <laughs> itself a monument. But anyway, but I knew that he'd written a dictionary. And so I, but I had no idea I really had no idea that he basically created the dictionary as we know it. Yeah. That's how monumental this work is. Like prior to Samuel Johnson's, this would have been in the 1740s. Uh, Mr. Johnson, a was, was such a sort of known, known man of letters that a, uh, a group of uh, London booksellers, kind of book merchants got together and pulled together the money to commission him to write a dictionary because by the time of the 1740s, you had, you know, mass printing had been around for, what, a couple centuries by this point? Um, yeah. But it was really in that, and we kind of talked about that in a couple episodes ago, that it's really in the 18th century that truly mass media starts really hitting its stride. Right. And whenever you have a mass medium, whenever you have any kind of mass, uh, kind of cultural exchange or something like this, there arises a need for, or at least, you know, there, there becomes a rationale for standardization. Yeah. And yeah. what you had, and of course, you think, think about, you know, I, I presume that most of our listeners are uh, English language first. If English is a second language for you, I am deeply sorry. I am <laughs> sorry that this ever had to be inflicted upon you. Because even a native speaker will know that if you're speaking the English language, just what a amazing just tangle it is um just you know in in grammar and especially in vocabulary and you know because it's kind of cobbled together from you know uh i guess two major streams of the germanic and the latin via and not just Latin. we have you know the germanic sort of baseline 
combined with grammar elements from the Celtic, combined with Latin from Latin directly, and also via Old French. And yeah, it, so, it's several it's several different language systems crammed together, right. and <clears throat> the the Latin and the Germanic are, are basically competing systems. Exactly, they're, they're incompatible systems jammed together, and that's what gives. Okay, if you're a native speaker already, you're in luck because English is one of the most fluid languages. It, it, it has this capacity to adapt and adopt. And I think at this stage, American English more than British English, though British British English is relatively flexible. Mm-hmm. But it, it has this tendency to, well, like I said, adapt and adopt. Yeah. But that makes it very difficult to pin down. Right. It's 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 extremely unwieldy, and and that's not even getting into regional variation. I mean, we're just yeah. talking about you know when we talk about the English language, what we're talking about is a prestige dialect in London at around this time is what we call (laughs) standard English, basically. And I think, honestly, Johnson had a lot to do with creating the idea of standard English. That was his whole project. Yeah, I mean, it's he he kind of lays it out on page three nineteen. <clears throat> this is this is his thesis or his theory, but it's also his idea about how language functions, mm-hmm. which is antithetical to how we think language functions now. But but he was not a Chomskyan, we shall say. No, nor was he a Saussurian. But as every language has a time of rudeness antecedent to its perfection, as well as of false refinement and declension, I have been cautious lest my zeal for antiquity might drive me into times too remote and crowd my book with words now no longer understood. I have fixed Sidney's work for the boundary beyond which I make few excursions. From the authors which arose in the time of Elizabeth, a speech might be formed adequate to all the purposes of use and elegance. If the language of theology were extracted from Hooker in the translation of the Bible, the terms of natural knowledge from Bacon, the phrases of policy, war, and navigation from Raleigh, the dialect of poetry and fiction from Spencer and Sidney, and the diction of common life from Shakespeare, few ideas would be lost to mankind for one of English words in which they might be expressed. Um, Okay, there are two ideas that he's got going on there. One Mm -hmm. is that there seems to be in his mind some kind of natural progress from chaos to order. Right. At and, least as I understand it. Yeah, that, which is which was fascinating because by <laughs> with the knowledge that we have of, you know, that linguists have acquired, it's precisely the opposite. Yeah. The, yeah. Like <laughs> languages are grammatically much more complex kind of the further back you go in their sort of development and they will end up losing certain aspects. Um which is will be plainly obvious to anyone who like has even a cursory sort of glance at what old English is like. And you're, you're like, you can, you can speak, I don't know, you, you can speak English without being aware of there ever being such a thing as a case, except for like, maybe like past tense or something like that. And then yeah. you get to like old English and it's like, oh, 16 cases and genders, which is something that modern English doesn't have and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> right. But yeah, so it's kind of, you know, I thought that was an odd sort of flag to plant. <laughs> well, it, it's that, that progressive prejudice that yeah. now is a much, is necessarily a much more, um, intellectually refined moment than then. Yeah. And the other thing that, that's kind of fascinating, he puts, um, he basically puts the Elizabethan age as the cutoff point. And I, I think I know the reason why. <clears throat> 
Um, we were talking b- before we started about how you know you were joking that this is a guy making a, di- a dictionary for a language that he despises. Um, <laughs> right. That's that's kind of like the the running theme in the preface to the dictionary is how difficult English is and how really kind of horrible a language is because yeah. it is so fluid because it is so hard to pin down. Yeah. And um, th- this is something that I guess this might be our segue into Shakespeare, but. The okay by Dryden's age by the 1660s already people were realizing that they had no idea what Chaucer meant yeah uh, and that was a relatively recent phenomenon and Shakespeare by the 1660s was already becoming distant by the yeah. time uh, <clears throat> Johnson is writing and the whole reason he was doing an edition of Shakespeare is because the language had become distant right because this was kind of the cutoff point the the sort of threshold for what readers could understand added to that you had textual variants which may or may not be accurate mm-hmm. and you get just confusion yeah. um, but the the they were already having trouble reading the the elizabethan age i yeah, think that's I, the cutoff point and that i think also speaks to why johnson went with the expansive nature of this project because yeah. prior to uh, you know i read a little bit and this isn't anything really you could you know uh, uh this, this is a rough and ready you know wikipedia summary kind of <laughs> background but prior to johnson's dictionary there, there have been other dictionaries or you know lexicons or what have you, but they functioned more like what we would today call a glossary. You yeah. would have you would have someone who would create a word list with the specific intent. They were hunting out obscure words. They were making dictionaries for if you're reading and you come to a word you don't know or understand, you can look it up in so and so's lexicon, and maybe you'll be able to you know get your head around it. Right. And I think what Johnson. I think the real genius of it and what made it such a monumental endeavor is that Johnson realized that you can't really the, – the definition of what's going to be an unusual word is going to be so fluid. It's going to be so changeable that and, – and language itself is so holistic in its way that if you're going to – if you're going to create something like that, John, that Johnson's commissioners needed, the kind of the people who like commissioned him to do this kind of thing – which was to create basically a, a, a source book for editing. Yeah. Um, then you needed to attempt to comprise the entirety of the language. And what's astonishing, and what I really, I really appreciated that Ox, the, you know, the, the editors over at Oxford included these facsimile pages of what the dictionary ended up actually looking like. Because to give you an idea of the, the kind of monument that this work is, uh, I was especially taken with uh, included in here is the entry for the verb to fall. Now, at first blush, that seems pretty simple, pretty cut and dried. You know, we all know what falling is. We all know what it means for something to fall. But of course, Johnson is much more interested in he's not interested in just, you know, sort of dashing off one, you know, sort of sense of it or whatever. And you think about fall and how widely varying it's used in idiom, 
how it's used in poetry, how it's used in, reg- in ordinary language, but with so many shades of meaning and differences in context, the entry for fall ends up having 65 definitions in it. I'm you, know how you, open, at them now. you know how you open up the dictionary and it'll say like, you know, whatever word, and it'll say one. It'll have like a list of senses. Like in this first sense, it means this. In the second sense, it means this, whatever. Fall has 63 entries. And yeah. each, each one with an illustration. So this is this is yeah. a, a what, what's again interesting about the dictionary is that prior to Johnson, and this may sound very strange, dictionaries didn't have definitions in them. They were primarily uh, primarily they would use illustrations. That is a quotation from a work that uses the word, and it's up to you to like piece it together from context clues as to like how you're going to use that in whatever you're looking at. Johnson provides a definition followed by an illustration. And if you're like me and a giant nerd and you are interested in things like etymologies and stuff, you know this format because you've looked at the Oxford English Dictionary. Right. This is basically prefigures the this is the basic format of the Oxford English Dictionary that other absolute monument to fastidious scholarly dedication Oh, yeah. um, which was almost 200 years after, you know, after, uh, yeah. uh, after Johnson here, but it's really, it's truly incredible. And I, 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 I would urge anybody just to, you know, just dive in anywhere. Like, you know, you can, I'm sure there's PDFs available online. Um, you can find like a sample of the dictionary. And so Johnson's going through and pulling illustrations and he relies heavily on Shakespeare for yeah. a lot of this. He's drawing a lot from Shakespeare. I think Pope also Alexander Pope, um, so every every sense, yet yeah, you'll have a word, and every sense and facet of that word's meaning is illustrated with a bit of text using that word the way Johnson is, you know, insisting that it is used in that manner. And he does this for every word, basically. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's a really, truly, it took 10 years to do, which even, like. I mean, I'd, I'm surprised it didn't take longer. Uh, exactly, exactly. I'm surprised it didn't take longer. And I think, it, you know, knowing all this, we can kind of forgive Johnson for the very opening of the preface, which had me laughing out loud. So I would like to share the, that first paragraph. Um, it's just, it really is an all-timer. So this is how Johnson kicks off his introduction to this monument in English letters. It is the fate of those who toil at the lower employments of life to be rather driven by the fear of evil than attracted by the prospect of good, to be exposed to censure without hope of praise, to be disgraced by miscarriage or punished for neglect, where success would have been without applause and diligence without reward. <laughs> Among these unhappy mortals is the writer of dictionaries. <laughs> Which, but, he, but he has a point, you know? He really yeah. does have a point that, like, you're creating this... what. What it, at first blush is an extremely dry editing tool, basically. Oh yeah. So that huh. no one's ever, no one's ever going to like shake you by the hand and say like, "Oh, Mr. Johnson, you truly inspired me with your sixty-three definitions of the verb fall." Um, except that he did to me because I thought that was great. Um, yeah, but but he's, but he's right that like you know everyone's going to get mad at him if he <laughs> screws it up. I just thought that was hilarious. I just thought like you know. Of course, this like hunched over ink stained wretch after 10 years of doing this goddamn English dictionary of the entire language. You know, he, I think he's allowed abs- to vent a little spleen. <laughs> it absolutely amazes me. I mean, when you think about, all right, I, I guess computers can do a job, but 
I, I was okay. One of the reasons that this this stuff always fascinates me is in in undergrad, I had uh, a couple of amazing classes with this guy who um, was a, a, a major literary editor, and he taught literary editing, and he really taught how to go in and do this stuff and think about this stuff, what it takes to annotate, what it takes to write an introduction, what is useful material, what is not useful material, where do you put the annotation, how do you... I mean, just the ins and outs of all of this stuff. And he described concordances. And, and concordance... You know what concordances are, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you find the... Like, in a text, in a major text, the, the Bible is sort of like the most common one where you I was going to say, I, I, I remember if anyone... Uh, just about everybody's church library would have had Strong's Concordance on the shelf. Right, right. Uh, that was done by hand. I mean, you, you yeah. just go through yeah. the text and accumulate by hand all of the things. And as part of a project for that end in grad school, I kind of went back to the well for this, looking through uh, doing my own edition of this three-page Samuel Beckett story that's never been published properly. Hmm. Yeah. And I had um, – what did I have? I had every edition of the work that literally had ever been published plus the typescripts plus the manuscripts. So uh, to go through all of that by hand, which you have to do if you're a responsible yeah. editor, yeah, you go through it, you put everything together, you cross-reference everything, then you have to merge everything to say what is the accurate, what is the inaccurate text. You have to justify every move that you make, even to the act of printing the, the damn thing itself. Um, it, it's an extraordinarily time-consuming endeavor that I suppose – digitization has made somewhat easier yeah. but you have to go to the source and that I think you're absolutely right that what Johnson did was this I mean tremendous endeavor so whether yeah. or not we liked Rasselis you have to admire the dictionary and one thing that uh, is really I think I admire a lot about Johnson in this project is that he was committed to he was committed to capturing the language as it is used which meant that not only was he just relying on his voluminous reading and taking notes on every like you know book and newspaper he gets his hands on, he would sit in the pubs and take notes, just listening yeah. to people talk. He would, and he would do that sort of around the London area. I, I'm not sure how you know. I'm sure he wasn't slumming it too much. So <laughs> what, I, I, I am not enough of a uh, philologist uh, or a historian of the time or a, a Johnsonist to know how much of say the sort of emerging working class dialect he managed to capture, but still like that idea of, you know, he's, he's not creating a dictionary of the written English language. He's attempting to create a dictionary of the English language, Um, which I, you know, I, I'm sure that this has been fought over many times in linguistic academies, but there is all, there is certainly a huge dividing line to be struck down between a spoken language and a written language. And I think especially at this time, because as so you mentioned earlier about you know, people starting to realize that they couldn't understand Chaucer anymore or they couldn't understand Shakespeare anymore, that that process of linguistic evolution and change actually ends up kind of getting the brakes put on a little bit. It ends up decelerating in the age of mass printing. Yeah. 
because you have, in part because of projects like Johnson's Dictionary, which standardize language. And so you all of a sudden have a standardized, a standardized version of the language, which is you are exposed to on a daily basis and which is more or less universal among the speakers of a language, at least those who are literate, which we also have to remember at this time is a much smaller proportion of the population than it is today. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like that, that kind of, it's just a really, like, I, I can't even imagine, like, how would I even begin? Like the first night where I'm like, okay, time to write down every word that I hear that's not on my list yet. How do you know if it's not on your list yet? What, how do you even, how do you even, I'm, honestly, I'm on the verge of reading the, uh, that, uh, you know, the famous, um, uh, what's, was it Ben Johnson who wrote the biography of Samuel Johnson or was it Ben something? Anyway. Oh, um. Oh man, now you called me on it, and <laughs> it's late at night, and Sorry, I don't man. have my um, James Boswell. Boswell, James Boswell. Yeah, excuse me. That's I'm it. I knew there was. Yeah. I knew there was a B almost, in there somewhere. All right, here's my dumb mind. I almost said to buy a Smollett, and that's not right. Um, no, Boswell. Yeah, which is almost saying I, I feel like maybe picking up Boswell's life of Samuel Johnson just to read any kind of chapter about how the hell he actually did this. Yeah, I. <sighs> I, I'm kind of curious about it myself. My understanding, I, I've never attempted um, the the biography of Johnson. I, I've read sections of um, some of Boswell's, like, just ramblings and stuff. Yeah. Um, but my understanding is that it's basically just a bunch of cool things that Johnson said. Right, right. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it was like, here, here, here's the best uh, witty repartee with my buddy. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in any case, the so the I guess that's pretty much all I have to say about about the dictionary here. I it's just really the preface is really worth your time reading, not only because it is it is fascinatingly bitter uh, to begin with, but also Johnson kind of goes through. I thought it was really illuminating and fascinating that he sort of talks about his methodology, he talks about yeah. the reasons why he made the choices he did, and that's really illuminating and interesting. Um, but what's I think. Uh, what can segue to the other sort of the main chunk on the episode here, though, is that he really does lean very heavily on Shakespeare. Yeah. And, and I thought it was interesting in the, um, the also the, the, the anthology that we read here includes the preface to a, a, a sort of a complete Shakespeare that Johnson edited and annotated. Yes. And in the, this, this preface to Shakespeare's works, he mentions that Shakespeare himself in his in in the language that he used, avoided archaizing, and avoid. He basically sees Shakespeare as being more a more or less accurate sample of ordinary speech of his day, d- turned and spun into poetic gold. But that he's not out there sort of picking obscure words for the sake of showing off necessarily. And I thought that was pretty interesting because we always associate Shakespeare with the most highfalutin language possible. Um, right, it, but, it's because so, it became that. Because it became that, and um, but yeah, and what did Johnson? What did Johnson have to do with that? I guess. <laughs> well, okay, so <laughs> we're going to save Shakespeare for a later date. Um, I don't know. We may have to maybe, finish maybe this and come back around I mean, to Shakespeare, yeah, yeah. Uh, just because it, it keeps coming back. Um, we may separate it out or do something. That I'm not quite sure that's up in the air right now, but. Um, Okay, so to dive into 
ah, it's so hard to get my thoughts around this. Um, there's so much to say about Shakespeare at this time period, and there's so yeah. much to say about what Johnson is doing with Shakespeare. Now, what you're talking about is Johnson's praise of Shakespeare for basically relying on everyday speech rather than cribbing everything from rhetoric. And yeah. this is going to become I, – I, I'm, I'm positive that Johnson didn't ori- originate that insight, but this is going to become one of the – the sort of romantic claims about Shakespeare's genius or Shakespeare's greatness is that it's derived from lived experience, i.e. natural experience, and not a bunch of cribbing from, you know, dry book learning. So he's relying on actual human experience uh, to create his art rather than um, going back to the books, which... Uh, yeah. He stole his plots from everywhere. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's, there's no original plot in Shakespeare, and yeah. and it's that that makes him sound sort of like an illiterate genius. He wasn't. He was widely read in the English language for like a, as widely read as you could have been at the time. Yeah. Uh, not widely read as an aristocrat would have read because he didn't have Latin and Greek or, or whatever he had. He had no Greek, but whatever Latin he had was rudimentary. It was good enough to fake it if he had to, but not perfect. But he was much more attuned to what Johnson and others call common speech. And you also have to remember that he was working with a troupe of actors, all of whom had come from some other profession. I mean, the Burbage brothers were were carpenters. So these guys are carrying with them reams of experience. And we know he wrote for certain actors who could do certain things. The greatest evidence of that is that his clown changes. Um, The type of humor he has in the earlier plays and middle plays is very different than the later plays Mm -hmm. because he has a different comedian. And so he could write one way for one comedian and then write another way for another comedian. So – Part of this, I think, just comes from the, the, just when you're in a group of people, you learn a lot of weird shit. Just because yeah. everybody's coming to it right. with, with something different. <laughs> okay. So, why, all right. Johnson's edition came out in 1765. And <clears throat> what we, we sort of have to do is get into, one, the structure of his preface or introduction, which is fascinating in and of itself. And then we have to get into the weeds of editing Shakespeare. All right. So the structure of the preface is to start laying out – it's basically in four parts. Mm-hmm. One is talking about his longevity. And he basically has this aesthetic theory about how and why things last. Um it's it's kind of fascinating because his claim for canonicity is basically people have thought about this for a long time. Um, they've thought it over and the dust has settled and they've considered it and considered it and reconsidered it and reconsidered it. And if it's still being considered and reconsidered further on down the line, then it says something yeah. to us. So part of his argument for great artwork is longevity, not necessarily out of some 
I guess, fetishization of the past. Right. But due to the consideration of the past and how things are handed on. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of an, an, an interesting take on canonization. And the second part of it, he sort of lays out the faults of Shakespeare. And he's clear-eyed about the ways that the <laughs> that plays was, don't always work. Yeah, that was one of my – that was probably my favorite part because like you know, in, 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 your, in your English literature kind of education, um, again, Shakespeare is the paragon. He's, he's Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, he's the very pinnacle of, uh, of eloquence and skill – and, and good writing, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, <laughs> I did appreciate Johnson coming in, which is like, all right, here's where Shakespeare sucks. And let me tell you why. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, still, okay. You know, in an appreciative way, but just like he was, he was pointing out, you know, pointing out the sort of uh, the dramaturgical uh, 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 shortfalls, I guess, of the great bard. Well, yeah, I mean, all right. <laughs> I want to have Matt Shiflett, uh back on. He was the the friend of mine who came to to talk about Moliere, and yeah, yeah. I want him to, I want him to come on after a couple of whiskeys so that he can start ranting about Winter's Tale. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of plays that are problem plays because they're extraordinarily problematic. I mean, th- and there are some things that just are ridiculous and don't work. Um, some things that have great spots, but then, you know, fall through, yeah. uh, so on and so forth. So, you know, this, this, I guess, idolization of, of Shakespeare is something that occurs sort of further down the line, mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and, and that's what, what I admire about Johnson, he's clear eyed about it. Okay. This is where these plays work. These are the faults that I have, uh, but then in the, in the third part, it's sort of like the defense. It's like, okay, but for all these faults, here's what he does right. And yeah. then the fourth part is on editing. Like, here are the editorial choices I made. So yeah. what I figured was we could go through the first three parts, and then I can give you all the background on basically what was a Shakespeare war in the 18th century. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. So um, – Basically, in Shakespeare's reputation in his own day, uh, he sort of first made good with the comedies. <coughs> like, the, these early comedies gave him a, a little bit of success. Um, he hit it big with the histories. And for a long time, part of the role that Shakespeare had was in shaping an Elizabethan English national identity. Yeah. So uh, that's really one of the reasons why he's he's held up so high is because he's writing f- basically tragedies from British history right. giving a sense of I guess English character. Yeah, in a opposition. kind of sense of uh mythic history almost. Yeah. yeah. I mean and that's sort of like a a local history that's in opposition to something or, or necessarily in opposition to something like the hegemonic French uh, classicism that was around right. at the time, right? So in his own day, he, he sort of gains this popularity for helping sort of shape this English idea of Englishness. But he was – I mean, all you have to do is put one of his plays side by side with Ben Johnson and any other uh, like put it side by side with Johnson put it side by side with um, Marlowe and then throw in uh, Webster and you automatically notice the differences in the language 
the plots are not very good, but Shakespeare's facility with language, his facility with trope, and the sort of manufactured three-dimensionality of his characters is really above and beyond. So it, it that's really what sets him aside from the other writers at the time. Yeah. And and I think you sort of miss that unless you've read the other writers at the time. So <clears throat> what we value now, I think, is his – I guess what we would call psychological acuity, this three-dimensionality and the variety of, of trope. Um, I think in Johnson's time, my sense is that he was – sort of understood enough to be considered a classic. Yeah. But Johnson, I think, is trying to be clear-eyed about what makes the writing good and right. what sometimes makes it not so great. Well, he, and right. he makes a point of, of, you know, pointing out that the – well, he's making an argument about canonicity, basically, where, where, yeah. where he says that there are people who have a prejudice for the past and they value something simply because it is old. And forgetting that, you know, there are things that survive just by sheer chance rather than from some quality. Um, right. So that you have to have some sort of critical appraisal of these works. Yeah. So he starts it out. He says, uh, what mankind have long possessed, they've often examined and compared. And if they persist to value the possession, it is because frequent comparisons have confirmed opinion in its favor. As among the works of nature, no man can properly call a river deep or a mountain high without the knowledge of many mountains and many rivers. So in the productions of genius, nothing can be styled excellent till it has been compared with other works of the same kind. Uh, so it's not just that it's old. It's that it stands in comparison to other works and is still found to be valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I thought was really sort of fascinating. Now, he says, of oh, the first building that was raised, it might be with certainty – determined that it was round or square, but whether it was spacious or lofty must have been referred to time. So you can only judge it over time and evaluate it over time. And longevity and persistence have something to do with um, how it operates. And he says, the reverence due to writings that have long subsisted arises, therefore, not from any credulous confidence of the superior wisdom of past ages or gloomy persuasion of the de- degeneracy of mankind, but is the consequence of knowledge of acknowledged and indubitable positions that what has been longest known has been most considered and what is most considered is best understood. So yeah. with the clearest view of things, you can have the best appreciation of things can be your argument for why something is a quote unquote classic. So, I mean, I, I thought that was just kind of a fascinating insight into his idea of canonicity. Right, it's right. not this, the past is always better, uh, kind of Swifty and Battle of the Books, it has more to do with how long and how often something has been considered and evaluated. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, he he argues on 420, nothing can please many and please long but just, represent- just representations of general nature. Uh, now that's sort of like a, a famous johnsonian quote taken out of context again and again Mm -hmm. and again but the rest of it is just as interesting particular manners can be known to few and therefore few only can judge how nearly they are copied the irregular combinations of fanciful invention may delight a while but that novelty of which the common society of life sends us all in quest but the pleasures of sudden wonder are soon exhausted and the mind can only repose on the stability of truth all right. Just representations of general nature. Now, this is something that we were talking about um, a long time ago when we were talking about vanity of human wishes. 
Um, this is this is where, <coughs> excuse me, I think he makes this claim that general knowledge comes closest to sort of capturing something that can be universally appreciated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If it's if it's particular and quirky and weird and strange, it can have a momentary fascination. But something that's recognizable generally by a large group of people over time has more power to it. Right. That, I think, gets at his justification for this idea of capturing nature. The way he's using nature there, I think, is a little bit slippy. Yeah. But that... I think is, is pretty much his, his aesthetic choice. Now he says, Shakespeare is above all writers, at least above all modern writers, the poet of nature, the poet that holds up to his readers a faithful mirror of manners and of life. His characters are not modified by the customs of particular places, unpracticed by the rest of the world, by the peculiarities of studies or, or professions which can operate but upon small numbers, or by the accidents of transient fashions or temporary opinions. They are the genuine progeny of common humanity, such as the world will always supply and observation will always find. His persons act and speak by the influence of those general passions and principles by which all minds are agitated, and the whole system of life is continued in motion. In the writings of other poets, a character is too often an individual, and those of Shakespeare is commonly a species. All right. What, what he's arguing is that Shakespeare presents these characters as generally as possible, and, and they're at once recognizable and... Well, okay, they're simultaneously recognizable and applicable, right? Right. So it's like a, it's like a he he's basically making an argument for Shakespeare's characters as being archetypes or yes. like uh, almost like Commedia dell'arte stock characters. Yeah. Um, which I think, and in reading that passage, I would I would not be surprised if like the 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 first um, uh, high school drama teacher who wanted to do a contemporary setting Shakespeare version <laughs> version of a Shakespeare play cited Johnson. To argue to the school board that no, this is the right choice. <laughs> well, see, this is <laughs> okay. See, this this I think has a kind of power to it, mm-hmm. and I think it speaks to how Shakespeare was passed down to Johnson in his age, and I think it speaks to how Shakespeare is passed down to our age. That we go looking for these these kind of broad things that we can latch onto to understand yeah. a character from that time as being contemporary with our time, but I think. That if you had asked a theater goer in the Elizabethan era if that was true, that it thought you were just out of your mind. Because yeah. so much, I mean, just a historical reading of the plays reveals how contemporary to his times a lot of these characters were. A lot of these stock characters or a lot of these particular temperaments, tics, or traits. Yeah. So he's. I think he's performing a generalizing function that isn't necessarily there in the text. I'm not saying Shakespeare can't be read beyond his age. I'm not saying these works – I mean, that's what we're doing. We're reading these works beyond their ages to sort of consider them and think about them and work through them. But I think Johnson is misreading. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. I, th- I think he's applying an 18th century aesthetic – to a 17th century text that just doesn't apply. Yeah. But, you know, be that as it may, 
So that's pretty much his his opening salvo. That the reason Shakespeare survives is because he's representing general human nature. He continues the idea in four twenty two, and that um, general human nature is sort of the best possible thing that you can represent because right. it, it lasts the longest. All right. right. So on. Um, 423, he has – I really sort of love this because he has this critique of, I guess, a pedantic – he has a critique of a pedantic critique of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Um, He he basically says that anyone who's going to – critique like the change of scenes or the breaking of the unities or how you know in act one we're in one place and then three scenes later we're in another place um people are going to point that out as unrealistic but on on 423 424 it says it is objected that by this change of scenes the passions are interrupted in their progression and that the principal event being not advanced by a due graduation of preparatory incidents once at last the power to move which constitutes the perfection of dramatic poetry this reasoning is so specious that it is received as true even by those who in daily experience feel it to be false the interchanges of mingled scenes seldom fail to produce the intended vicissitudes of passion Fiction cannot move so much, but that the attention may be easily transferred, and though it must be allowed that pleasing melancholy be sometimes interrupted by unwelcome levity, yet uh, let it be considered likewise that melancholy is often not pleasing, and that the disturbance of one may be the relief of another, that different auditors have different habitudes, and that, upon the whole, all pleasure consists in variety. The players in their edition divided our work, author's works into comedies, uh, histories, and tragedies seem not to have distinguished um, the three kinds by any very exact or definite ideas. Uh, he's sort of talking about how it's true that um, sometimes he bounces back and forth between mm-hmm. um, like times or places or funny bits and serious bits. Uh, but he basically <laughs> says um, that we we already take it as a given that we're watching a play mm-hmm. you know um if you're going to be bothered by by some of the uh i guess unrealistic aspects of it then um or, or those concessions to theatricality yeah uh then just go home <laughs> why do you think this is real you don't actually think they're stabbing caesar do you um come on this is already a play you can you can let a couple things go but yeah so one of the 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 critiques is that or one of the faults really is that um he can bounce back and forth between uh these emotional moods that are kind of funky he can just kind of jerk us around a little bit Uh, i think a famous case would be the knocking on the door in macbeth which thomas de quincey wrote a whole essay about um you go through the most intense or one of the most intense moments in that play where macbeth and lady macbeth are have just gone through with the murder and all of a sudden someone's knocking at the door in the middle of the night and they have to rush off to sort of conceal this horrible thing that's going on Mm mm-hmm 
uh, this horrible thing that they did. And then you have this whole scene with the drunken porter giving you this comedic routine as if he's opening the, the gates to Hellmouth. And, um, it's just this weird drunken scene played for a laugh. That would be one of the things that I think Johnson is pointing to here. But what is the purpose of that? Well, it's a kind of psychological relief, right? The, the, the joke acts as a kind of safety valve for the horror that we just saw. So I, you know, that's, that's sort of an example. I think of one of the things that he's talking about, Um, but he talks about the defects. All right. So the first defect that he claims is that Shakespeare is essentially amoral or immoral. Uh, he says, from his writings, indeed, a system of social duty may be selected, for he thinks reasonably, uh, for he that thinks reasonably must think morally, but his precepts and axioms drop casually from him. He makes no just distribution of good or evil, nor is always careful to show in the virtuous a disapprobation of the wicked. He carries his persons indifferently through right and wrong, and at the close dismisses them without further care and leaves their examples to operate by chance. Um, you tell me the moral of Othello. Uh, evil wins. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> um, okay. What's fascinating to me about that critique is what Johnson sees as a fault is something that I think the 20th century takes as a, a, a virtue. That, right. It, it would be it's it's presumed uh, an aspect of kind of a, a mature imagination uh, almost like yeah, it, or or even I would hate to use the term realism, but a kind of uh, it, would, it would be. Yeah, you're right. Like th- th- that would be like the kind of happy ending ones are are, are would be presumed to be naive in, in some manner. Exactly. All right. So one is that he's he's sort of amoral. There's not always a clear moral vision. Um, another de- uh, supposed defects. His plots are very loose. Uh, I'll give you an example of one of my favorite plays that basically has no plot. Um, As you like it is so much fun. Uh, it could have been over in Act Three, and the only reason it's not is because one character decides she's having too much fun pretending to be a boy flirting with this other boy, yeah. and just declines to take it to its conclusion. So, like, <laughs> the, the the play very knowingly could be over in Act Three, and then just decides to keep going for no clear, coherent reason. Um, Twelfth Night has no coherent plot whatsoever. It's just a mess. Uh, kind of on purpose. Like, the whole thing is just... I mean, I mean, it's like watching a Marx Brothers film. Um, Hamlet, the, if you actually tried to tell someone the plot of Hamlet, they'd look at you as if you were an idiot. Because it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, and then he's banished to England. Oh, but he's caught by pirates and, you know, safely delivered back to Elsinore. You're like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, so the, the, the plots are, are very loose and strange. Um, the endings are perfunctory. Uh, he mixes time and place. Um, now, this is something which I thought was, was really kind of fascinating. Johnson complains that Shakespeare can be bawdy. Uh, mm-hmm. at times, which apparently was inappropriate for Elizabethan England. Um, apparently, Johnson was not very familiar with the Elizabethan court. Uh, <laughs> and, and I wonder how familiar he was with other uh, Elizabethan writings. I mean, all right, yeah. Ben Johnson, the, the 17th century playwright, the, the, the um, 
friend and competitor often of Shakespeare, he begins yeah. his play The Alchemist with the famous lines, I fart at thee. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, if he's looking for earthiness, it was all over the place in, in Elizabethan England. Um, and that's not even at court. And from what I understand at court, um, it could be uh, even wilder. Um, right. Okay, so the tragic characters he claims can seem kind of over the top at some points. He says that the set speeches are cold or often overly rhetorical. He says Shakespeare can't always express clear emotion, which I think is kind of like a a strange – I'm still not quite sure what he means by that or or the critique that he really has. Um, And his problem is that he puns a lot. Uh, now, this that is true. Like a part of okay, all you got to do is read any exchange between Falstaff and Howell and Henry the Fourth, and you're looking at three to four different meanings of a word as they make line by line by as they go line by line by line by line. Um, I that's I don't know. The pun has a a, a I guess a bad reputation i yeah. love puns uh, yeah I, I was gonna say this is that's a that's a pretty severe judgment call there johnson i mean some of well, us really enjoy some of us are fathers and enjoy puns <laughs> i think i know why he made that call mm-hmm. what is the pun if not loose language um, oh yeah it's, he's, it's, he's got that axe to grind from his horrible dictionary time well it's 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 a <laughs> word that slips through the meaning and then give, makes meaning prismatic. Yeah. It frustrates a, a sort of the given of meaning and the given of clarity. And I can see someone who's engaged in a project of standardization really hating that very fluid aspect of language. So anyway, that was that was a run-through of the defects. But then he has these sort of graces or defenses. Um, regardless of the genre, the pieces do have a plan. So one of his critiques is that um, the, the, the genre – and this is sort of what I was pointing to before – the genres are sort of fluid. Mm-hmm. And you can even look at something like Midsummer Night's Dream, which veers wildly back and forth between tragedy and comedy. I mean the whole – basis of that play could have been tragic and the play keeps telling you this could go tragedy at any minute but then through the intervention of the fairies it veers into comedy um romeo and juliet could have been a comedy up till act three and then one sudden act of violence and all of a sudden we're in tragedy territory yeah so even though there's this merging of genres or, or some confusion of genres, the plays do have a structure, and he says it'll follow that structure. Um, he says he breaks the unities, but is it really that difficult to follow? Um, essentially, no. Like yeah. it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really follow, and this is one of my um, one of my favorite parts of what he's talking about. <laughs> he says 
the objection arising from the impossibility of passing the first hour at Alexandria, and this, I, I guess, is sort of what I was referring to earlier when he was critiquing this kind of pedantic critique. The objection arising from the impossibility of passing the first hour at Alexandria and the next at Rome supposes that when the play opens, the spectator really imagines himself at Alexandria and believes that his walk to the theater has been a voyage to Egypt and that he lives in the days of Antony and Cleopatra. Surely he that imagines this may imagine more. He that can take the stage at one time for the palace of the Ptolemies may take it half an hour for the promontory of Actium. Delusion, if delusion be admitted, has no certain limitation. If the spectator can be once persuaded that his old acquaintances are Alexander and Caesar, that a room illumined with candles is the plain of Pharsalia or the bank of Gran- uh, Granicus, he is in a state of elevation above the reach of reason or of truth, and from the heights of Empyrean poetry may despise the circumstances, uh, circumscriptions of terrestrial nature. There is no reason why a mind thus wandering in ecstasy should count the clock or why an hour should not be a century in that calendar of brains that can make the stage a field. The truth is that the spectators are always in their senses and know from the first act to the last that the stage is only a stage and that the players are only players. They come to hear a certain number of lines recited with just gesture and elegant modulation. These lines relate to some action and an action must be in some place, but the different actions that complete a story may be in places very remote from each other. And where is the absurdity of allowing that space to represent first Athens and then Sicily, which was always to known to be neither Sicily nor Athens, but a modern theater. Um, (laughs) unless you're absolutely delusional you know you didn't walk to egypt uh on the way to the theater so i just i I love that Um, i mean it does seem like the kind of like uh, i mean (laughs) johnson seems like he would have been really impressed by the part in cats where the cast comes out into the audience you know right (laughs) Right. Um, so so anyway all right, so that was one of the things that that he sort of admires. He breaks the unities, but so what? Um, yeah. He uses, like we've been talking about, actual speech or or common speech as opposed to polished rhetoric. Um, I, I think that is kind of an accurate assessment. We 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 mm-hmm. talked about why um, he he talks about um, Shakespeare sort of emerging with the British stage. And and this is this weird kind of idea that persists into the late 19th and early 20th century. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that um, he was there at the beginning of the modern English stage. He rose with it and kind of perfected the form and then led to this decadence or decline from which it couldn't quite uh, recover. Uh, that, that There's that weird theory of aesthetic decadence that, well, it was part and parcel of Shakespearean criticism that I've read in the Americas from around 1900, <laughs> which plays into, I think, this Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment era idea of, I guess, a rise and fall. Uh, but anyway, he he really sort of thinks that Shakespeare, to go back to his terms, is um, a poet of nature. And this is the one thing that I think is the through line that we have been covering Mm -hmm. since we started this. All of the texts that Bloom has selected as these major texts that he wants to write about, um, they all emphasize personal experience over book learning. 
they all emphasize this way that true wisdom or true art or true aesthetics or true whatever comes from experiential well, it comes from experience rather yeah. than through long study in ancient tomes. Right, or some sort of transmission from – yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and so that's – I mean that's sort of what's fascinating to me is that's what he posits really is so essential in Shakespeare is that this is coming from his – actual lived experience and not from some kind of rhetorical polish that he, he, he drew from elsewhere. Right. Okay. Sit back. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> um, if you really want to get into the, the, the rushes, like a good place to start um, with trying to understand the variations, permutations of Shakespearean texts is um, the the publishers of the Folger edition of Shakespeare? They've got an online site that gets into it's it, it's not sort of highfalutin academic, but it's a good entry point. Yeah, it gets into the variations, permutations of Shakespearean texts, and why editing Shakespeare is such a bear. Um, yeah. Go to Folger.edu. Um, the Folger editions are great. Uh, relatively inexpensive editions. I tend to use the Ardens because it's got the variations and permutations and all of the kind of scholarly apparatus. Yeah. But if anybody wants to just read Shakespeare to read Shakespeare and bone up, go with the Folgers. Folger or Signet, both are, are really fantastic. Um, they're kind of like your starter Shakespeare's. All right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I got my information like, I got the information not necessarily just from there. I'm gleaning it from all these other things. But if you really want to check it out, go to Folger. The gist of it goes like this. All right. Um, publishing plays in the Elizabethan era would have been like publishing screenplays. You know, it, it's yeah. sort of, why? <laughs> I can go see it. <laughs> Um, and the performance was considered a much more essential thing than the text, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you're a contemporary and you're living in London, you can just go see the damn thing. And, you know, I don't have to buy the script to Indiana Jones. I can just watch the movie, right? It's really right, available. Right. It's it's absurd. But Shakespeare did develop such popularity and like basically there was money to be made. So about half of his plays were published while he was alive in um what were called quartos. They were sort of like cheap editions and quartos because they were sort of cut into four. And you could basically fit one play per quarto. So about half of the plays that he wrote were published in quarto form while he was alive because there was some money to be had with these cheap editions. Yeah. And um, seven years after he died, his friends and colleagues in the Kingsmen uh, – that was sort of like what his players were. First they were Lord Chamberlain's men, then they were the Kingsmen. Um, they put most of the plays into sort of like a large book format called the Folio. Now, that was in 1623. Okay. So that comes out. 
Now, between the 1594 editions of the Quartos and the 1623 edition in the Folio, uh, there are variations. There are variants. Um, sometimes the variants are extreme. Um, I'll get into that in a second. But anyway, so 1623, yeah. you have the folio, the first folio. The second folio comes out in 1632. In 1663, you have the third folio. In 1685, you have the fourth folio. Yeah. Okay. So as they're putting these folios out, there's more and more demand for more plays and they're putting more things together and putting more things together. So they're getting they're getting the folios from a couple of different sources. They're getting them from the actual scripts that they would have had around. They're getting them from the editions in the quartos. Right, mm-hmm. they're getting them from here. They're getting from from there. Um, sometimes the texts are relatively stable, like there might be one or two variants as you move from one to one. Sometimes they're completely different plays. Um, yeah. Hamlet is cobbled together from several different sources, and mm-hmm. there's yeah. like, I mean, it, it's an act of editing. The most extreme is Lear. Where, like, the whole B-plot is just not there in one of them. Yeah. It, 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 it's like, okay, we have to cut this, move this, do this, do that. So any edition of Lear that you're reading now is a composite text. Um, I mean, it's, it's radically different. So it depends on the text. It depends on the play. But you're moving from play to play to play to play, and all these variants sort of get in there. Okay. Um, in 1709, I told you, buckle up. <laughs> right. In 1709, um, the Roe um, basically does this edition that was pretty much thought sufficient. Um, he, I believe he was the one who cut everything into scenes and acts. Yeah. I mean, like in the quarters and folios, there weren't even scenes and acts. Huh, it's just yeah. kind of like here's the whole damn thing, um, and he added stage directions. Uh, one of the famous, like one of the most famous stage directions in all of Shakespeare is when Romeo and Juliet kiss for the first time. It's not in the text. Uh, it's implied by the sonnet that they sort of speak together. Huh. But there was no stage direction, and he just added it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, Roe was mostly thought to be sufficient until Alexander Pope went in and started pointing out all these ways that um, it it doesn't work. Like there are um, emendations that he made and um, printer's errors that get back in there and there are corruptions in the text yeah okay so pope critiques the corrupt text and in 1725 he produces his own edition now by all accounts it's extraordinarily eccentric um he essentially excised sections that he just didn't like (laughs) (laughs) he just took them out um he went back through and regularized a bunch of things uh in terms of the rhythm and rhyme and I think by most accounts, he just did violence to the text. Like yeah. he, he, 
like rode roughshod over it and sort of randomly well okay it he had his own plan in his mind but um it didn't it, it was just eccentric yeah um okay so uh pope's text is then critiqued by the lawyer and poet tybalt um Tybald does his own edition in 1733 that Pope really excoriates. Yeah. Um, but Tybald points out, like, usefully all the flaws in Pope and starts making some inroads into correcting some of this. Now, Johnson doesn't necessarily love Tybald, but he does admire some of the moves he made. <laughs> now, um, Johnson relies on um, he he has a lot of good words for Thomas Hammer, yeah. And Hammer was a guy who came afterwards, who basically took the best parts of Pope and the best parts of Tybalt and crammed them together, but didn't make any distinction as to what was whose contribution and what was the original text. <laughs> So it's it's I think Johnson admires some of the moves that he made, but contemporary editors consider him to have just botched it. Yeah. Like you, if you're going to make any editorial or textual move, you got to signal the editorial and textual move that you made. And Hammer just I, I think he assumed that the readers already would have known and understood it. So um, the question is, why does Johnson do what he does? Yeah. And he he has this interesting line on four uh, forty six. He says, "It is no pleasure to me in revising my volumes to observe how much paper is wasted in confutation. Whoever considers the revolutions of learning and the various questions of greater or less importance upon which wit and reason have exercised their powers must lament the unsuccessfulness of inquiry and the slow advances of truth." when he reflects that great part of the labor of every writer is only the destruction of those that went before him. The first care of the builder of a new system is to demolish the fabrics which are standing. The chief desire of him that comments an author is to show how much other commentators have corrupted and obscured him. The opinions prevalent in one age, as truths above the reach of controversy, are confuted and rejected in another, and rise again to reception in remoter times." Thus the human mind is kept in motion without progress. Yeah. Thus sometimes truth and error and sometimes contrarieties of error take each other's place by reciprocal invasion. The tide of seeming knowledge, which is poured over one generation, retires and leaves another naked and barren. The sudden meteors of intelligence, which for a while appear to shoot their beams into the region of obscurity, on a sudden withdraw their luster and leave mortals again to grip their way. Um. <laughs> okay, as someone who's basically practicing and operating at the end of English as a university subject. Yeah. <laughs> this hits so close to home. I'm not even exaggerating about that. Yeah. yeah. There's not going to be a field in 20 years. Um, but the, the hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What he's acknowledging is the ebb and flow of scholarship, the ebb and flow of editions, of editing. Yeah, and that was one of the things that <clears throat> this literary editor, whose whose courses I took, would always talk about is no matter what choice you make, no matter what you put out, the choice that you made will not be up somebody's alley. So they'll do their own edition, and you just have to be prepared for that. <laughs> That's just you know somebody's <laughs> going to critique X, Y, or Z, and so their own edition is going to come out, you know, whenever or however, and that's just how it works. So it 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 all depends on what you want from an edition. Now, what I think is really fascinating about Johnson is okay, he says that what he's what he's advertising here is that his edition is not the end all be all because over time the flaws in his edition will show. And what he took in his own time as the appropriate measures will not be the appropriate measures for the next time. Yeah. I mean, there's something kind of Montanian about this. <laughs> but, but what is he doing then? Well, okay. I'm standing here. I'm looking over all of these editions that have made certain kinds of moves I'm taking what I can take from each of them to put together as best as I can a readable text. And that's all I can do. Um, there's something admirable about that. It's, it's workmanlike, but it's something that I really sort of admire about the endeavor, probably because I've spent my whole life not necessarily doing exactly the same, but some yeah. of the same. Yeah, what yeah, it's in, it's in the, the wheelhouse. Like you, you, you followed a similar path, I suppose. Yeah, and and <clears throat> it, it shows me how little this stuff has changed. What did yeah. this critic say about this? What did this say about this? What's the evaluation of this? How do I make my own intervention? Do I need to make my own intervention? So on and so forth. And so it's really sort of fascinating for me that um, his his edition looks so close to the Arden edition. Mm-hmm. Which is really sort of like the the major scholarly edition, where you have all of the textual variants, you have explanatory notes at the end, um, sort of like longer contextualizing explanatory notes. You have um, <clears throat> a, a section under the variant notes on readings and interpretations. Because like I said, part of this is variants have crept in that maybe corrupt the text. And then other critics and scholars have made moves to try to make sense of what might be a corruption or what might be a metaphor that we just don't understand now. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's, it looks extraordinarily like contemporary editing practice. Yeah. And that's what I really found fascinating. That's, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's amazing that this kind of, and again, I, that, that highlights the, uh, well, the, the, the contemporary nanity. I, I do not know the proper participle or, or part of speech for that. The contemporariness of, uh, of Johnson. And, and it's not even so much, I, I would have assumed that it must be, well, because he's so foundational to the contemporary English letters. And I think you're hitting something deeper though. Like he's, it's not necessarily that everyone has been following Johnson because he's just such a titan or whatever, or responding to him like everyone in France has to respond to Montaigne. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's there's something to maybe there was something actually universal that those Enlightenment type guys were tapping into as you know as they claim to in a lot of things, which did well, not which was not necessarily the case, but it, they yeah. might have actually touched it in this sense. I, I think it's. <sighs> I think it's the pragmatics publishing publication and scholarship has changed less between then and now than it had between Chaucer's age and Johnson's. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think that might be it just because the situation of publishing and scholarship is much closer now to when it was in Johnson's time. Right. But, um, and even, I mean, I think even including the, you know, it, it, it's common for us here in the early 21st century to think that we have gone through the most intense revolution in the creation and dissemination of text that's ever happened. And I don't think that's true necessarily um, for reasons that I think you kind of touch on that. Yeah. Uh, more, more than like, you know, and I tell people all the time that like, you know, hey, yeah, the Internet's kind of impressive and all, but it's just the telegraph. That's all it is. It's just an extremely, it's just an extremely fast telegraph. It's not a new technology. It well, feels I, I, new, but you know. <laughs> I think I think you cracked the joke once that Amazon is basically just the reinvention of the Sears catalog. It's the, it's the Sears catalog. You just use a, a, a web document to order from. That's all it is. I was getting so upset about this the other day. I was I was uh, actually talking about how Sears completely blew it in the nineties. Because they had everything, they had everything that like everyone assumes Jeff Bezos must be a genius, and so he deserves a hundred billion dollars. They had all that figured out. They had nationwide distribution networks for a complete range of products, and the only reason they couldn't have just become Amazon overnight is because no one had the foresight to invest enough in a web-based order form. It just it keeps me up at night, man. It keeps me up at night. So I guess that moves us into. Uh, the the literary criticism and or or I guess what we would call the literary criticism and these are the the prefaces to the lives of the poets. Um, he was given this job to basically write the prefaces to editions, or it, it was this scheme originally to oppose Scottish uh, bootlegging of texts. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> These uh, London publishers wanted to prevent um, sort of like these, um, I guess, black market texts getting out there. And um, 
so he he was approached to do these prefaces to you know major poets and things like that and of course johnson being johnson he put it off and put it off and then couldn't get around to it and eventually held up the whole project for years until finally you know all these things came out so there's a smattering of them and they're kind of fascinating uh to me now, probably not to anyone else because I, I spent uh, a lot of time in undergrad doing 18th century lit. Yeah. And a lot of these are sort of, I guess, judgments on other 18th century writers. Um, so the, <coughs> the first one that they collect is on Addison. And Addison was a publisher. He was a newspaper man. He worked with Steele to produce uh, The Spectator. Yeah. And so they they did The Tatler and The Spectator. And what these were were sort of like – remember when we were reading all those um, literary editorials that Johnson wrote? Yeah, yeah. Well, these would have been the the places that published those or, or like that. So right. it was these sort of slice of life things, and and it's sort of interesting. He does a rundown of Addison's biography, but then goes through his career, and what he finds valuable in Addison is not necessarily his poetry, not necessarily his drama, which he doesn't really think too much of, but he thinks that Addison and Steele did for England something that hadn't been done in England before. Mm-hmm. Basically, the creation of these slice of life type editorials yeah so they capture for for johnson the flavor of lived experience in england so i thought that was kind of like an interesting yeah uh, look at it um he has a section on abram cowley which was included because that's where the idea of the metaphysicals comes in um, that's where Dunn and these other sort of 17th century poets at the time are labeled metaphysicals, and it's a pejorative. Yeah. Uh, he thinks Callie is, is overly ornate and overly drawn out. And it's interesting to see – I mean, I, I think they included that just for the historical reference because it's one of the more famous – I guess, literary judgments that he made that doesn't really get overturned until the 20th century where the modernists basically bring back uh, an interest in that sort of intellectualized figuration. Um, Now, his section on Milton is really kind of funny. Um, He absolutely despised Milton's politics. I mean, couldn't have been more antithetical. But he does find value in Paradise Lost. He, yeah. he doesn't really like a lot of Milton's other stuff. He thinks that Milton's abilities are really best served in the epic. But um, he he has some interesting ideas about it. Well, one of my favorite things is he responds to critics who said that Satan in Paradise Lost is impious – He's like he's saying right. he yeah, that's, that's the entire point. Yeah. Uh, so I, I thought that was kind of funny, but um, his summation—I I mean, he 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 takes a lot of digs at Milton, but his summation I thought was really kind of fascinating. It's on um, page seven sixteen. He says, "Where is it?" Um, he says. 
His great works were performed under discountenance and in blindness, but difficulties vanished at his touch. He was born for whatever is arduous, and his work is not the greatest of heroic poems, only because it is not the first. Yeah. So despite the problems he has with Milton, he has this, I think, extraordinarily um, complimentary reading of what Paradise Lost did. So I, I, I really sort of found that fascinating. Yeah. Now, he talks about John Dryden. Dryden Dryden is an interesting figure and, and not very fun to read. <laughs> yeah. He he was the poet laureate for Charles I – I'm sorry, Charles II. And a lot of what he wrote was either satire or basically political propaganda or literally poems for occasions. Yeah, but what what he admires in Dryden is that his wit was built for the occasion and was sort of like scratch it off and we're done. There's right, this right. kind of ease and fluidity he has with the language, where he doesn't have to ponder over it or think too hard. He's just da 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 da, and it's out. It's almost like yeah. in and out. And he finds that Dryden is not the most learned man, but has something to say for every occasion. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's sort of like, it, it's not that deep ponderousness. It's just sort of like the right thing at the right time. He's, so he's admiring I, Dryden from the standpoint of like, uh, he's a good late night host. Like he's not cranking out the finest comedy of the age, but he's always got something pithy to say about whatever's going on. Yeah. It's sort of like, or, or it's kind of like the cliche that they have about Miles Davis. Uh, Miles Davis wasn't, the best trumpet player. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't necessarily the most innovative, but he knew exactly which note to put where. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of like the right thing at the right time. And it's just, it's great. It's, it's, it's great because of that. Yeah. Um, he also says that Dryden in his terms perfected or refined the English language that he took the verse forms that were available in English and then reworked them, reprocessed them, and and made them workable um, so that he could pass them on. And that's what he says is, is really valuable about Dryden, but probably why Dryden isn't necessarily the one that's going to last the longest because – he made the innovations that what was innovation for him became the standard. So he tweaked it to the point that now everybody does it. So (laughs) the original innovation is kind of worthless. Yeah. All right. Now the section on Pope is, that's the one that I thought, okay, this is the one that I think everyone must read. Um, Pope was a fascinating figure of the 18th century. He, he was Catholic. Um, so he faced a lot of sort of political and social prejudice because of that. He, at age nine, his spine started curving. So he was physically disabled. I, I think he only grew to be like maybe four feet tall. One of his yeah. uh, shoulders was higher than the other. Um, he was always sickly. He couldn't get around much. And <clears throat> Dryden really goes into the character of Pope 
um, what a peevish, obnoxious dude he was. And that, that sort of bears out in the biography. Dryden lays, uh, not Dryden, Johnson, I think, lays it on a little bit. But yeah. Pope really was a, a, a gnarly dude because of the difficulties he had. Pope also had a chip on his shoulder because his parents were older and his father really sort of indulged him and basically gave him the run of the library. Yeah. So Pope had tutors to a degree, but he was mostly self-taught. And all right, let that sink in when I tell you he wrote a best-selling translation of the Iliad. <laughs> right. I mean, he, he, you know, pushed himself through that and 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 really worked hard to to make it himself. And he was the first writer in English to make a living just from writing. And he was a millionaire because of it. Uh, But anyway, he was also a very unpleasant person to be around. Um, Imagine that, an autodidact who was the world's first professional writer being, you know, kind of a kind of a a, a crusty guy, you know. (laughs) Well, but it's it's also due to his his I mean, in a lot of ways, not necessarily just to his disabilities. It's not due to his disabilities. It's due to the social reaction to his disabilities. He's got this one heartbreaking letter where um, I think he was writing to Swift where he says, no matter what I do, I will be little Alexander that the women laugh at. Yeah. Um, He, he was regularly mocked on the street. Um, if you wanted to mock him in satirical editorials at the time, all you had to do was draw a little cartoon of him as a monkey or a spider, yeah, uh, emphasizing just his, pick his the disability. lowest, yeah, the lowest yeah, possible fruit. <clears throat> yeah, I'd say I can't imagine anyone doing that now, but well, look at the age we live in. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So. Despite he basically spends Johnson spends you know the first half of the essay really going on about what an unpleasant person Pope was to be around according to all sources, and then digs into um, what makes him a fascinating poet, and he he has all of these insights into how Pope worked, um, why it worked for Pope. He has these comparisons between Dryden and Pope. Um, he says that Pope had no patron. So he was never put on the spot to write something. He could write only what he wanted to, whereas Dryden always had to sort of please the patron so he could choose yeah. the subject. And um, <clears throat> that meant that, I guess in his terms, Dryden could hit higher highs, but Pope could soar longer. Yeah, um, yeah, Dryden was more like squibs that you just shoot off, but Pope is sort of like this more refined thing that, or, or his works are more refined that that sort of lasts longer. Now he says that um, the the best thing <laughs> that Pope really composed was the first, the essay on criticism, and, <laughs> right. and he says that it, it's really kind of sad that you know he 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 hit it out of the park so early that it was all kind of downhill from there. Um, but he, he goes through Pope's works and gives these kinds of evaluations. And honestly, I found that they were mostly apt. Um, the, the one place where I would say I, I really disagree is in the Dunciad. Um, Mm -hmm. the Dunciad is this weird anti-epic that Pope wrote 
where he basically names all the names. He he goes after every single one of his literary enemies. Yeah. And ultimately produces this mock scholarly edition with um, annotations by these two made-up scholars who don't understand the poem at all, but are very interested in sort of sniping at each other through their footnotes. <laughs> right. And, and, that I, mean, sounds, I should I should like to read that at some point uh, myself because yeah, it, it sounds like a really a, a pretty uh, interesting exercise. So I, I mean <clears throat> that's where I thought he 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 differs, but then or, or that's where my taste differs. But anyway, um, he, he's pretty apt on Pope because he'll he'll admire the fluidity of certain things. He'll admire how he varies the rhyme, and he goes into the actual. Um, poetics of it he goes into the rhythm and meter to sort of show how it operates he breaks down how a trope functions and then gets you to think about okay what is the logic of this does this work as a metaphor as a comparison what two things are going together and how are they going together is this reasonable rational and just and often he finds in pope that it is it, it's really kind of interesting as a piece of literary criticism in terms of understanding trope and and meter okay so after that um he has this review of watts the theologian who wrote joy to the world yeah <laughs> Which, yeah okay uh but <clears throat> It's kind of it. That one was a little bit slight, but I see why they included it because what Watts also did was wrote a textbook on logic and reasoning. And one of the things that Johnson has to say is, okay, so his textbook has been called dull, but it's a textbook. It's in use. It's right, right. When's the last time you had, you had an exciting textbook? Yeah. And so he ends. It's very interesting to see how Johnson ends because he ends on Collins and Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Collins was Collins and Gray are both pre-romantic authors. I mean, really, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from Collins and Gray to Wordsworth. In fact, Wordsworth, yeah. uh, a scholar friend of mine, says Wordsworth basically ripped them off. <laughs> Uh, and threw in uh, a bunch of lower class poetics to make himself seem much more of the people. Um, but Collins was a pre-romantic writer of odes, and the ode is a poetic form that doesn't really have a set form. It, it's a very difficult form to write because basically you set the form. Yeah. And you just have to repeat the form and sort of set it out. So it relies on the individual genius of the author. What? All right. Johnson knew Collins. And essentially what happened to Collins was he had a mental breakdown. Yeah. Um, he, he wrote and wrote in poverty for a long time. He had an uncle die and leave him with money. But he had a breakdown. And... I think that Johnson sees something of Collins' situation in him, in himself. I mean, it's sort of like there, but for the grace of God, you know. Right. Um, Johnson struggled himself in near poverty for years and years and years uh, back when he was doing the Rambler and Tatler and, and all that stuff. Um, he has this estimation of Collins that's extraordinarily touching 
someone as ironic and and sort of stodgy as Johnson, you don't think of that that sort of ironic stodgy quality being touching. Yeah. But I, I would urge anyone to read his his writing on Collins because it it really is this was a a really smart dude who just couldn't keep it together. Um, on 761, basically what he does in his preface, he says, I wrote an earlier appreciation of Collins and there's no point in me writing something else. Here's the earlier appreciation. He sums it up and he says, after his return from France, uh, the writer of this character paid him a visit at Islington where he was waiting for his sister, whom he had directed to meet him. There was then nothing of disorder discernible in his mind by any but himself, but he had withdrawn from study and traveled with no other book than an English testament such as children carry to the school. When his friend took it into his hand out of curiosity to see what companion a man of letters had chosen, I have but one book, said Collins, but that is the best. Um, basically a children's Bible. Yeah. That's that's what this guy is 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 sort of reduced to and and there's something it's the distance it's not i did this it's the author did this the yeah yeah kind of combined with the sort of pathos of the scene i mean it's it's so extremely sad and and he says that collins has his good parts he has his bad parts but it's really the personal reminiscence which i found extraordinary um, and then Gray, he, he doesn't think much of Gray, but he yeah. has a grudging respect for, um, for some of his poems. Um, this is on, uh, On 7, uh, 68 and 69, mm-hmm. he says, the character of his elegy is the the um, elegy – oh, I want to get the title right. I should have written this down. It's the <laughs> elegy written in a country churchyard. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like one of those famous anthology pieces, but it's a famous anthology piece for a reason. It really is this proto romantic poem about going to a country churchyard and sort of seeing this sort of leveling effect of death over the time, to- over time. It's, yeah. it's a really wonderful poem. Um, he says in 1768, in the character of his elegy, I rejoice to concur with the common reader, for by the common sense of readers uncorrupted with literary prejudices, after all the refinements of subtlety and the dogmatism of learning, must be finally decided all claim to poetical honors. The churchyard abounds with images which find a mirror in every mind and with sentiments to which every bosom returns an echo. The four stanzas beginning, yet even these bones, are to me original. I have never seen the notions in any other place, yet he that reads them have here persuades himself that he has always felt them. Had Gray written often thus, it had been vain to blame and useless to praise him. All right. <laughs> um... That's sort of a, a a grudging respect at the end, and you wonder how much irony is in. Well, he's popular, so I guess he makes some sense. <laughs> right. But I I think he is recognizing that there's a shift. That the thing that Gray is doing is something 
that's really kind of original and mm-hmm. is moving away from the poetic of the present moment. And you can see Johnson anticipating that shift to romanticism. Yeah. I, I, I don't think he necessarily absolutely appreciates it. Sure. But he, but he, he's, he's cognizant of it. Like you can, you can, his, his, uh, he's licked his finger and he, he sees which way the wind's blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And he can recognize something and appreciate it to the best degree that he can. Yeah. I, so, I feel like that's something Johnson does has is that he is, he's well aware of what is and isn't his cup of tea. Yeah. But can still give an honest go. If, even if he knows it's not for him, I suppose. Right. Right. So that's it. Yeah. That's it, folks. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> so, I mean, th- this is this is really kind of a, a great segue into Goethe because Johnson ends yeah. right about where Goethe begins. Um, if Johnson sort of, you know, if the, the section of Johnson that we're reading ends right at the beginning of British Romanticism, Goethe is really for better and for worse, the romantic figure of the age. He, he right. is that figure of the age. You know, it, when we get into part two of Faust, um, I, I'll sort of make a stab at trying to explain Byronism and why Goethe even was sort of fascinated by Byronism. But Goethe, I mean, he, I think the image of Goethe it, it has more to do with romanticism than anything. I mean, the poem yeah. itself or, or the play itself is so bananas. <laughs> it's going to be a sort of hard time parsing <laughs> it, but yeah, yeah. we've got the pre-romantic and now I, I think we're moving straight into, um, the full flush. Yeah. So in a month or so, we are going to pick up Goethe. Yeah. And here's how we're going to do it. Uh, we're planning on reading Faust Part One first. It's really sort of a self-contained tragedy. Uh, it speaks for itself, more or less. It's pretty easy to follow. And then we're going to read Faust P- Book Two or Part Two in five parts, uh, one episode per act. Yeah, because this thing is bananas. Um, it's <laughs> right. going to take an episode apiece to parse each act. That's that's really how far out it is. So, yeah, and I guess we should also say that it's it's far out in a manner which is very commensurate with. Uh, mine and Claude's extra cannonballular interests. So like, it was part of the reason why we're, we're going to be spending so much time on it. But, you know, uh, fret not, uh, dear listener, we're going to be kind of breaking that up a little bit for you guys because, and I think we have mentioned it on the show before, but in case we haven't, just so you know, that this pro- these projects are still coming down the pipeline um, and have been firmed up, we're going to start releasing uh, a second episode every month, uh, alternating between two kind of side projects that uh, Claude and I are embarking upon. Claude is going to be uh, tackling the new canon um, with, uh, and what, what's going to be your co-host? Who, who's your, who's your canon uh, Oh, uh, My friend Michelle is okay. going to be the co-host and we're, we're sort of going to be taking on works for the past, let's say 15 or so years yeah. um, that have garnered critical acclaim of some sort. And I guess walking through them, evaluating them, seeing, yeah. you know, if they hit close to home, things like that. And that's, that's really fascinating to me. I can't wait to listen to you guys talk about those because as a as a public librarian, 
Um, I, you know, I, I do encounter all these books that, you know, sort of have like a, a moment um, yeah. and then and then subside very quickly from the consciousness. <laughs> so so I'm curious as like what 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 develops contempt, you know, in the contemporary literature that has some kind of staying power that folks are still talking about it. Um, yeah. And I myself will be uh, leading an intrepid uh, uh, co-cosmonaut on a journey through the canon of science fiction literature. Um, this, and we've talked on the show before, and you know, of course, I had my big solo episode about Gene Wolfe, so you guys know that I am a, a you know a big uh, science fiction fan. Um, and the actual roots and development of the genre is something I've been very interested in for a while now. And I sort of saw this as a good opportunity to, you know, kind of explore that and actually read a lot of these books that or a lot of these texts that are, you know, ones you've either just, you know, heard of or are just most familiar via their adaptations or whatever. Um, so and I'm not going to announce the name of my co-pilot yet because I haven't firmed that quite up, but I think he's on board. Um, but we're going to be starting out with some Jules Verne. And I haven't decided what Jules Verne yet, um, but I, I've wanted to read Jules Verne because I've never read Jules Verne, of course, never in the original French and never in translation. I know him purely through half-remembered viewings of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from the 1950s, uh, sort of on TV, you know, at some point. And so I thought, like, well, damn, for such a foundational figure, I probably do owe it to him to actually read him. So, but yeah, so while we're <laughs> while we're starting down the, the Goethe path, um, be on the lookout for uh, you should get two cannonballs a month from now on, which is very exciting. And because we love doing this stuff, we love yakking, we love talking books, and uh, and so you know, and and I hope you guys like listening to it because you're about to get twice as much. <laughs> Yeah, so so keep your ears open, and that's going to be coming down the line. And Daniel, we're done with Johnson. We're done with Johnson. God bless the man. I will still use his image, uh, looking grumpily up from a from a book as a reaction gif, and uh, uh, and just you know, good luck and Godspeed to all the lexicographers out there, the truly downtrodden, most despised people on earth. I uh, I forever keep you in my memory. And with that, I think we're out. <laughs> even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.